1: and welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast. Here on CBS Sports, that's Tom Fernelli. I'm Chip Patterson coming to you live at YouTube.com slash Covered 3 and all across the 24-7 Sports Facebook network. Thank you for joining us live. If you are here live, smash that subscribe, smash that like. Come and jump in the chat and participate. We got a lot of fun on tap for you today. A little bit later on, we're going to be diving into mystery teams. So, What is a mystery team, do you say? Well, you know. Preseason mag, you know, it's it's that time where everyone's got their top 25. Everyone's got their favorite magazine of choice. They're reading on the beach, they're trying to get ready for the season. Everyone's got a top 25. And and as I'm scanning everybody's preseason top 25, I realize everyone's got about the same, you know, top five, six, seven, maybe even all the way to, you know, eight or nine teams. But beyond that, ooh, boy, we've got a lot of variants. So we're gonna, we've each got a group that Tom and I have put together, we're going to go into why there might be so many questions, why no one can figure out where they stand in terms of the rankings. So these, these mystery teams that we can't quite figure out, can't quite have a consensus on. We will get back to them a little later, but first, wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. What if mystery teams are the future of college football scheduling? Like Alabama.
1: Oh, like in like free agency. A playoff
0: game on Saturday, but Alabama doesn't know who it's playing in that playoff game until Saturday. Like they come out onto the field, like wrapped in like paper with question marks on it. And then they come barreling through and it's like Georgia or Ohio state or somebody like, you don't know, like you play a team, you have to prepare for a team and you don't know who the team is. That's the the
1: conference realignment is being driven by creating the most um, ideal ratings scenario for the future of the sport. Mm -hmm. And so the next Logical step, yes, is for us to create an Alabama's opponent. We'll let you know
0: after the break. Could be Clemson. Could be New Mexico
1: State. Who knows? Tune in. (laughs) Every get get them all there in the hotel, and then they'll get to bust through the paper. But yes, before we get there, we've we've got to dive into all the latest with conference realignment. Tom and Bud joined you for an emergency podcast when the stunning news broke that USC and UCLA would be joining the Big Ten. What has followed? Well, initially a lot of the word was that the Big Ten wasn't done yet. And that one report, which I I do agree with, as I have come to understand the situation, when they might make their next move is something that we'll discuss here. But that has the rest of college athletics uh, entirely sort of spiraling. You know, what happens to the Pac-12, which now just has 10 teams, and as of yesterday, has started entering into a new media rights negotiation. What happens with the Big 12 which just recently welcomed in the likes of Cincinnati, Houston, BYU, and UCF, just got a new commissioner as it tries to solidify its future. The Big Ten, with USC and UCLA, clearly is moving to the top of college sports, uh, much like the SEC did with the addition of Texas and Oklahoma. What in the world is the ACC going to do? So let's start All with right. this. What? <laughs> let's start with this, Tom. You said you texted me. You said there's one thing with Big Ten expansion that no one is thinking about since the Big Ten began all of this. It seems like we've had three weeks since last Thursday when the news broke. What's the one thing about Big Ten expansion that no one's thinking about?
0: Well, it's it's not the most important aspect of Big Ten expansion, but it is an aspect of Big Ten expansion that we as college football media and our listeners and viewers as college football fans. Sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. And when you look at the SEC and you see what they've done by adding Oklahoma and Texas, it's pretty clear what the SEC's plan is. They want to dominate the sport. Greg Sankey read a book about the Premier League and said, why don't I just make the SEC into the Premier League? And that's what he's done by trying to add large brands by Oklahoma and Texas and adding it to what's already the most powerful conference in the in the country. The Big Ten has much the same kind of feelings. Like, obviously, you bring in USC and UCLA. Those are two large brands. They're going to help with your television deal. You bring in the market of Los Angeles. So now you have five of the top ten television markets within your conference. These are all things that matter because it means more money from television. But... There are other aspects of college that matter that generate revenue. And anybody listening or watching right now has who has student loans that they're still paying off understands that there are other avenues for colleges to make money, mostly more than they get from football. So if you're the Big Ten, we've talked about this a little bit in recent weeks. If you're the SEC, you don't need to consider it because, as we've said, part of the reason the SEC has become so dominant in the last couple of decades is The migration of the United States population, for the most part, from the Midwest to the Southeast over the last few decades for various reasons. And we've seen the population shift down there. There's more people down there. There's more athletes down there because of it. So if you're the SEC, you don't need to expand outside your footprint. But they're leaving the Big Ten area. And the Big Ten needs students. They need people coming to their schools, So they go and they get USC and UCLA. And yes, they would accept them no matter what, just as football programs, as brands to help increase the value of their television package. But the other aspect of getting into the California market is that no state in the country produces more students who leave the state to go to other colleges outside Mm -hmm. of their own state than the state of California. So if you're the Big Ten, you're not only trying to expand your brand as far as a television product, you're trying to expand the conference's brand into states like California and other states right across the country. Like maybe in the future, I guess we'll get to this more. But like if the Big Ten goes into the southeast to expand, it starts right in the ACC states down there where populations are growing and more students are, you know, future students are being produced to try to spread your brand, to make it more amenable to somebody right now in Southern California. Probably never thinks of going like, I'm going to go away to college. I'm going to go to Iowa. But if they're suddenly watching USC play Iowa all the time in football, they kind of start to get an idea. They get more familiar with the Big Ten and the world starts to seem a little smaller. So this is something that is I can confirm consideration among people in charge at the Big Ten with what they're looking for. Like everybody knows about the academic part of it. That's different, too. They have if you've looked at what the Big Ten has done, they have not added a school that was not a member of the AAU nebraska was at the time nebraska is no longer a member depending on who you talk about or ask about it's either bs that they're no longer a member or whatever but every single school that they have added has been aau so the big 10 just as far as reputation it does still care about its academics it's not just trying to grab the best football teams and the best brands but it also cares about the future population of the students paying tuition and going to their schools because because schools like we talked about this over the weekend chip they were making money long before football became profitable. And if football ever stops becoming profitable and one day it might, they're going to need the, their, their prime avenue to make money is you paying like fifty thousand dollars a semester just to go to school there.
1: So my um, one way that I've always explained the Big Ten's dominance in terms of what it's able to command and from media rights It's just that they have more bodies. You know, I go and I look to rankings of what universities have the largest living alumni base. And uh, I think I pulled one up from two years ago. And when you add UCLA to that list, I counted up 10 of the top 15. Mm -hmm. It was like Penn State was number one, you know, Illinois was up there. It was loaded with all kinds of schools that are all just like, oh, if I go to uh, Fox and I say, you know, what is our value? Fox is going to say, well, how many people are going to be tuning into these games? And the, the number one way that I can know this is by alumni the people who have an emotional investment, the people who have an experience of being tied to this university. Here we go. Penn State, Indiana, Michigan, Michigan State, UCLA, Ohio State, Rutgers, Purdue, Wisconsin, Illinois, 10 of the top 15 in the country in terms of largest living alumni. And it's something that runs uh, counter to, especially a lot of these people that I'll talk to locally, you know, North Carolina, we're still close to the SEC and they they don't always have that understanding of just how massive those universities are. So when you go and you grab these California schools, when you start to entertain the possibilities of further expansion and like you mentioned trying to increase the university's brand awareness, it do you think that the Big 10 uh, is always going to be able to live on this strength in numbers? advantage like no matter what happens in terms of college football competitively on the field because like the ACC has three national championships uh here in the last decade or so the the Big Ten just has one but the Big Ten's got all these people and the Big Ten's got all this money and it's got the money because of the people is is that just going to continue to be something that you think the Big Ten can have that's sustainable I don't I don't see enrollment going down anytime soon
0: I don't know if it's sustainable but I do think that what i was discussing is part of the strategy to make sure it stays sustainable yes in that you have a larger i guess the way you could put it is customer base because let's be honest that's what colleges have kind of become they've become companies where they're trying to convince you to buy their product which is a piece of paper that says you're worthy of having a job somewhere and it only costs you 350 grand to get so yeah no it is it's all part it's not just a football grab there's a lot more in consideration for the big 10 which is why when you start, when you're just sitting around talking with your friends, like, well, what about this school? What about this school? It's like, it's not just going to be that that's a good football school. Why wouldn't the Big Ten want them? There's a million other things under consideration within that conference because, like, as lame as it might sound to us, the Big 10 does care about academics. Now, that don't get that twisted as saying the Big Ten cares about its student athletes getting the best degrees that they can get. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying reputation-wise, as far as the schools are concerned, they do care about their reputation as academic institutions and how they are viewed by people, not only in you know nationally but globally. So, before we get
1: to ACC, Pac-12, Big 12, and maybe even well where the SEC might figure into that, let's let's follow that thread right there. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that unless there's a university who rhymes with loader game, Mm -hmm. there's not going to be any news coming from the Big Ten anytime soon. If that is correct, where do you think the other potential options are or where do you think the Big Ten, uh, because reportedly like we're going to try to at least mention some of the reports that have been going on, bring some clarity to the situation. Uh, It has been reported that up to 10 schools have made that hotline bling for the Big Ten in the Big Ten offices, trying to at least see if there's going to be an invitation out there. They're trying to let them know, hey, 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 maybe us, maybe us, maybe we get an invitation. Can you put us on the wait list? Please, please, please put us on the wait list. It's okay. We'll stand by. We'll just we'll see if something pops up at the bar. We'll sit there and I I understand why universities are doing that because right now the Big Ten's looking extremely stable, powerful, and profitable. That it, it is a smart move if you were going to put yourself on the wait list for the Big Ten. And I like I said, I don't think we will see any immediate news unless it rhymes with loader game. So who do you think those schools are that are interested and where do you think the the potentials are for additional additional um, schools being added to the Big Ten's roster?
0: Well, no, you're, you're dead on in that Notre Dame is the linchpin that not just the Big Ten is waiting on. Everybody is waiting on Notre Dame. They want to know what Notre Dame's going to do because, like, let's let's do the dominoes. This is I'm not reporting anything. I want to be clear. So don't if you're listening to this, go aggregating. I'm just this is my understanding of the situation. Just reading tea leaves and talking to some people that kind of have an idea of what's happening and what's going to happen. The Big Ten is waiting on Notre Dame before it does anything because the Big Ten wants Notre Dame, which would be the only non AAU school that the Big Ten would consider adding because it's Notre Dame and they've wanted Notre Dame for a long time. They've been making the googly eyes at them for decades. And if Notre Dame joins. Then the door will open for other programs and other schools, whether that would be Stanford, Cal. There have been reports that Oregon and Washington have reached out to the Big Ten about possible, you know, possibly joining the league. And the Big Ten's kind of told them they're holding off for now. And that's the Big Ten waiting to see what Notre Dame wants to do. But it does make sense. If you are the Big Ten, you just added USC and UCLA. Mm -hmm. Like we've talked about the traveling. It would be nice to give them some West Coast, you know, quote unquote partners to deal with. So it would make sense for the Big Ten to go that direction, which is why when you see the reports today and, you know, from the weekend, like Dennis Dodd reported at CBSSports.com, how the Big 12 is interested in maybe adding up to six pack 12 teams, which include Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, Utah, Oregon and Washington. I don't see Oregon and Washington joining the Big 12 until they know for a fact they will not be in the Big Ten because the television deal is not going to be the same. Like if you – the the new Big 12's TV deal probably won't be all that more profitable than what the Pac-12 or the Big 12's currently new TV deal would be. So a lot of it depends on Notre Dame. If Notre Dame joins the Big 10, then they add another maybe Stanford, maybe then Washington Oregon come in. But I do think eventually the Big 10 – I, I joked earlier when you asked about the, what's the ACC doing, and I said it's dying – I do think the Big Ten and the SEC will be coming for the ACC at some point, and I guess we could discuss that too.
1: Okay, uh, before we get to uh, Tom, literally laying out the blueprint, giving away media consulting advice for free. I know we've got all kinds of media rights executives and conference commissioners Mm -hmm. who listen to the Cover Three podcast. Tom Fernelli is about to do your job for you. You can hit him up in Venmo. But before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, Dennis Dodd's report that the Big 12 could be, you mentioned those six schools right there. Uh, It is uh, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Arizona State, Oregon, and Washington. Big 12 has a new commissioner. That new commissioner is reportedly said to be aggressive. He wasn't supposed to start working till August 1st. He is already out there. I would not be surprised if the big 12 can make this move in terms of timetable, because I mentioned the PAC 12 has already started media rights negotiations. I think it works like this. None of those PAC 12 schools are going to make a move until they get the number for what the new media rights deal is going to be in PAC 12. So they can compare it to what they would get potentially in the big 12. I do think that like one of the reasons the ACC deal is so, um, It's just basically losing money every single year is the fact that they struck it back in 2016. Like the Big 12, just by re-upping, is going to get a more favorable payment than if what it had done in 2016. I think the Big 12, again, compared to deals that were struck Six years ago, is going to get something that's going to be a little bit competitive, not with the Big Ten and the SEC, but at least competitive, particularly if they are able to add the Phoenix market, particularly if they are able to add the Denver market and really start to expand a little bit. What do you think that the Big 12 is going to be able to pull that off? Or at least, let's say, throw out Oregon and Washington. Do you think that the Big 12 would be able to make a move and get uh, the other four Pac 12 schools? And if so, what what does that make the Big Twelve?
0: Well, I for let me say, just vibes wise, the Arizona schools, Utah and Colorado to the current, then you know what the future Big Twelve is going to look like once Texas and Oklahoma leave. Just absolutely perfect. They fit in wonderfully, I think. <laughs> just, but,
1: like, I found myself excited about yeah. the idea because they're getting BYU. So now Definitely. you've got BYU and Utah paired together. Mm-hmm. Um you, we get to preserve the holy roar as a conference, um, as a conference rivalry all the way through. Colorado returns. Come home. Yeah, they get to come home to the Big Twelve, yeah. and then yeah, like Arizona schools are a little bit of a new fit. But I'll tell you what, uh, they this is the other thing that I heard: Pac twelve fans don't travel very well, but the Big Twelve has some fan bases that do, and some of the Pac twelve schools are intrigued at the opportunity of seeing their home games, like as a fan of a team, you would not be excited about the fact that you're selling tickets to the other team. But if when you're running a university and trying to make money, knowing that you're going to get that influx into your college town, the economic boost and the ticket sales, that's something that's attractive. So whether it's like an Iowa state or a Kansas state or something like that, they might be willing to go and, and make a weekend out of going to Arizona state and Arizona and seeing the sights.
0: Mm-hmm. But I, I do think going back, like you said, the Pac-12 You know, it's reopened its negotiation window for new TV deal, but it's a call is coming from inside the house situation because who's the Pac-12 opening its negotiations with ESPN and Fox?
1: Well, so there was a did you see the last paragraph in Dennis Dodd's ACC Pac-12 story? No, posted late. late, We're recording on Wednesday. It posted late Tuesday night. Um, it, It is that there is the discussions of a quote loose partnership because we're never allowed to call anything an alliance ever again after what the Big Ten did to the ACC and the Pac-12 but it is a loose partnership between the ACC and the Pac-12 that may even include a championship game between the two champions in Las Vegas the whole idea would be to put together a package that would make the ESPN deal bigger for the ACC and bigger for the Pac-12 and in the very bottom of the story the last Last paragraph and this is just from the story Dennis wrote Fox is not expected to be a part of the Pac-12 negotiations moving forward and at that time I was like whoa so Pac-12
0: screwed but I mean here's, here's the thing who are you selling an ACC Pac-12 championship game to yes like, I mean what value is that to ESPN they've already if, got the playoff and so you're, if you're- it's
1: Clemson Oregon you've got, you've got some juice you know if, but you're if you're
0: essentially locking yourself out of the new college football playoff because the SEC and the Big Ten, when they have their new super conference, is like, well, you guys already have yours. You don't need listen, to be a part of ours.
1: I, I I mentioned that only like I think it's most notable for our conversation because of mm-hmm. the Fox bowing out of the Pac-12. In which case, I was like, oh yikes, because that's Fox basically saying like we care about the Big Ten and the Big Ten. Oh, like this is this is what we are. Fox Sports is Big Ten. Big Ten is Fox Sports. Like that's just like fully going all in. We got USC and UCLA out. We got them into the Big Ten. We are out of the Pac-12 business. That felt extremely significant as we continue to look at this arms race as, and I'm not a media rights expert. Go get a sports business journal subscription listen to John Ourand or whatever. But like the, it is like the Fox Sports League, AKA the Big Ten versus the ESPN League, AKA the SEC. And that just sort of, The way that I see the arms race from my seat.
0: Well, let's look at it this way. The Pac-12 as a television product, even when it still had USC and UCLA, was not attractive enough within the Pac-12 to convince cable companies in the in through all Pac-12 states to even pick up their network. Like they looked at that and said, "Eh, no. It's not worth it on our end. So like, that's the thing, like USC and UCLA, once they join the Big Ten, more people in California will be able to watch their games. And they had been able to watch some of them while they were still in the Pac-12. So it's not surprising that Fox isn't really all that interested. And ESPN's got all sorts of time to always fill. So, of course, they're going to be interested. But how interested as far as financially? And then you turn it around. It's like if if those schools, the the Arizona's, Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Washington, like the Pac-12 is opening its TV deals just to get, if they're just sitting there trying to test the water to see what they can get before deciding what else to do, they're negotiating with the same people that the Big 12 will be negotiating with, except the Fox, I would guess, would be more interested in the Big 12 because there's already a working relationship there. And at least you've got Texas, which is always going to be football mad. So. Fox and ESPN are gonna be able to set whatever the money is. Doesn't really they're gonna be like, whatever you want to call your conference or whoever's in it at this point, the price is probably going to be exactly the same. So you have to ask yourself, where do I feel like we fit best fight, you know, financially and culturally going forward? And if you look at the Pac-12 right now, I mean, it just lost its biggest brand and it's kind of flagship school. It lost UCLA, it lost its biggest market in the conference. I feel like if I'm looking at the two of them. It's hard to imagine the Pac-12 is going to be the victor coming out of this scenario. And I don't know if the ACC, I, I, I have no idea what the ACC stands to gain by this loose agreement with the Pac-12.
1: And all right, so the the other phrase I've been coming back to is the no bad ideas portion of uh, all of this that when you're floored by something as stunning as USC and UCLA going to the Big Ten and you everybody goes into their camps, there's the university presidents that are in their camp, the athletic directors are in their camp, the league offices are doing it, and I always just imagine the big whiteboard and whoever's leading the meeting says, okay, no bad ideas, and a loose partnership between the ACC and the Pac-12 with a potential championship game between the champions in Las Vegas Seems like it comes up in a no bad ideas meeting. Does not mean it's a good idea, because it was presented in a no bad ideas meeting. So I, I it, a lot of things are being presented, and so that's why I try to have a little bit of patience with all these stories, because they can be very true that it is being considered, but there could also be a lot of things that are being considered. the The thing that jumped out to me again was that last uh, that last paragraph where it just said Fox is not expected. And of course, expected uh, could work the other way. Uh, speaking of the ACC, it, it has long been mentioned that the grant of rights uh, portion of the current ACC contract, something which extends all the way out to 2036, is something that's prohibitive from schools leaving. Now, it is, under by, based on my understanding, uh, the situation much like a coach's buyout. We always talk about a coach is on the hot seat. Well, the buyout drops at this date. The buyout drops at this year. As we get closer and closer to 2036, the cost to leave with the exit fee and the grant of rights as it is set up is going to continue to drop. Could it be worked around now, Tom? Yes. Okay, give it to it, me.
0: It involves some cooperation, and evil genius kind of thought process. Um, first, shout out to Andy Staples, who wrote about the grant of rights situation on The Athletic last week, and he basically went over there are four ways to get out of a grant of rights the first way is you just throw up the double birds and say screw you i'm leaving come get it you know come and take it which will probably end up costing you a lot of money the other one is you just sue which there's no guarantee that you're going to win you're going to be paying lawyers a very long time to be fighting this in court with no guarantee you're going to win so you're probably going to end up paying A lot of money. The third option is to come to like a buyout agreement where it's like, all right, well, we're not going to pay the full grant of rights, but we can work it down and you're going to end up paying a lot of money because there's still like 15 seasons left on the grant of rights. There's a fourth option. And it's one I have mentioned on the show before. You can't pay money to something that doesn't exist. So speaking of loose agreements and alliances, There are going to be two super leagues, the Big Ten and the SEC, who have been gobbling up all the big brands and who don't really seem to be done just yet. So what happens if Kevin Warren and Greg Sankey get together and decide they're each going to take four ACC schools at the same time? What if the Big Ten says, give us, we're going to take Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia Tech and Duke or Pitt or, you know, whatever. I don't, I, I, Chip, you tell me, would North Carolina go anywhere without Duke?
1: I, I'm, I've always um, uh, imagined that uh, North Carolina and Duke are packaged together and the big 10 would always be the most likely landing point. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the AAU. North Carolina is like an old dog in that frat. Yeah, They're like 1922 Initiation date in the AAU. Duke
0: yeah, they've got AAU branded on their ass. And it took, yeah, you know, they had to exactly. deal with that sitting down for a few weeks. So, anyways, the Big Ten goes against Virginia, North Carolina, Duke, Georgia Tech. And then the SEC says, well, we'll take Miami, we'll take Florida State, we'll take Clemson, and I don't know, fourth NC State, Virginia Tech, whatever one they want. So the two of them coordinate, get together, and take eight of the 14 teams in the ACC. Who do you have to pay the grant of rights to at that point? The conference is dead. The other six schools will be leaving. So that's the one way I think that you could get around it. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying it's what they should do. But if they wanted to, that is one way both the Big Ten and the SEC could make it happen and make it happen immediately and not have to worry about paying a bunch of money to make it happen.
1: Mm, Just (laughs) so I thought that you were going to come here with like I've I've um I have heard about a, a, a competitive clause. The idea that there is an argument in court that, for example, Clemson could say uh, this deal that we went into is an unfair deal for us because it is equal revenue payments and we are the reason for a majority of the money that's coming in and being distributed to all 14 members. That Clemson can say we are the brand that drives uh, the the payments. And so therefore, this deal is unfair for us. And that's why we should be able to get out or at least negotiate some sort of exit strategy. And that those would be very, very costly legal moves because they would take a lot of lawyering. They would take going to court. They would take a lot of billable hours, but they could be something that would be argued. It's just that from the legal perspective, no one is quite sure uh, if they want to engage with that yet. Yeah. It's just such a commitment of time, of money, of resources that trying to nitpick all the different loopholes within the grant of rights. And by the way, the, the grant of rights is if UNC and Duke go to the Big Ten, then Big Ten checks have to go back to the ACC if the mm-hmm. ACC still exists mm-hmm. as, until 2036, mm-hmm. which is why the cost of those moves then begets gets a little bit lesser and lesser and lesser as you go on and get closer to 2036, which is why I think the ACC's one move as it stands right now is to engage in breaking up the idea of revenue sharing, is to come to the table and be like, all right, look, we get it. Like, we need to keep our most valuable brands Clemson, Florida State, Miami, North Carolina, Virginia, and like, we. Maybe we bring in Duke, but maybe it's not Duke. Like I think Duke Basketball is a national brand that it rivals what Notre Dame Football was at its peak powers. That you can show up anybody anywhere in the country. And you could have on a Duke basketball shirt and people recognize it and they know what it is. I don't know how much that means necessarily to these contracts and TV executives. But I think that the ACC, one of its moves is going to come to the table, and whether it's based on on-field success, whether it's based on ratings, but create some sort of structure that allows for these schools to make different, different amounts of money. I think that's only a temporary fix. I do not think that prevents the ACC from being rated in the long term, but I do think it could calm the waters enough to give the league a chance to create some stability. It's a lot like an open marriage. You tell yourself you're like, did it work for others? No, but it could work for for us. us. (laughs) (laughs) Like, didn't the Big Twelve try to go into the uh, you know different revenue sharing to try to keep Texas happy? And look how that worked out over the long term. But I, I, if you if you're looking at this from the ACC's perspective, that seems to be. Uh, one of the moves that you have to to try and calm things down and get your members on board and maybe keep them from at least paying lawyers to go through the contracts and look for loopholes.
0: And There is another aspect of all this or maybe another avenue for these conferences to take that, you know, would be crazy. What if a conference just said, you know what? We don't have to make more money than we're already making. We're making plenty of money we could just keep doing what we're doing and we don't have to worry about being the best football conference and we don't have to worry about winning national titles. What if we just go about our business being extremely profitable, doing what we're doing, but not making as much as the SEC and big 10 and we just live our lives and don't worry about having to be the best at everything and always having to have more, 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 more.
1: Do you think the ACC will end up doing that?
0: Uh, it could
1: just, I, like, no, we're cool. We're We're, we're just going to keep, doing what we do this is we, we don't need all this money i mean we're, we're not even going to invest all this money in our football programs like these so many acc programs historically have been on the low end of the totem pole in terms of how much money they pour into their athletic departments athletic department budgets how much money they pour into their football programs like they've looked at the arms race that has already been ongoing and kind of said pass mm-hmm. and it's Hurt the league if everything is viewed through the lens of you have to be bigger, you have to be more, you have to be on pace with the Big Ten and the SEC. But I think that there are those, your Clemson, your Florida State, your Miami, your North Carolina, your Virginia, uh, and, and maybe even your Duke, where the what could be a $50 million per year gap between you and programs that you're trying to recruit against and win against on the field, where that could end up being a breaking point.
0: Well, cause there's, there's a lot of short-term thinking when it comes to conference realignment in like, if you look at the people who are running the conferences now, like Jim Phillips is a long time, you know, athletics administration, Greg Sankey was in athletics administration, but Klyovkov, not from it, um, Your mark, not from it. Kevin Warren, not from it. Like these are people in charge of conferences that really like your marks jumping in and like, all right, well, we'll just take these schools because it's like, I mean, it's there's more to it than that. These are people who don't really have familiarity with the sports, the traditions, all that. They're just looking at the brands and saying, how can we get more television money than we got with our last deal? Because that's what it always is about. Every single move in realignment has been how do we get more television money than we got the last time? And how do we keep getting more? But eventually, the money's going to run out. The bubble is going to burst. You're not going to have any more schools you could poach to increase your conference's value. Frankly, I think a lot of it, we're kind of reaching that breaking point now with some of these conferences. So at some point, and it's not its not anything any current conference commissioner needs to worry about because they'll be long gone by the time it happens. But at some point, that the money faucet's going to stop. You're just going to get what they're willing to give you because they already have everything that they need. College
1: football does not have shareholders that has to answer to. It has oh. stakeholders, which is why bad business decisions are made all the time. And to bring this full circle to your Big Ten point, Big Ten's got that galaxy brain and they're like, yeah, the bubble is going to burst. Football won't be around in 2050, but these schools will. So let's have as many of them together as possible with as many people and as many alumni so that we can have more customers. Hmm. Anything mm-hmm. else we want to hit on? I mean, this—I—I I knew that we had like four. Like, head, I feel like we got to a lot of the big points of where we're at as we sit here, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Is there anything that we left out uh, in terms of, um, you know, where we're at and sort of you know, where where all these different conferences are sitting? Oh, the SEC. I feel like the SEC's comfortable and is just—they—they they know that there's a couple of schools that will call if things start to get look poor, but. They're just, I don't see them or hear much from uh, from the SEC offices right now.
0: No, I, I don't think the SEC needs to rush into anything. They could just yeah, kind of wait think. and see. Because, I mean, they've. if the SEC stays where it is, and again, kind of going to what I was saying, if, if they just stay where they are, they're going to be just fine. They don't really have to grab any more schools if they don't right. want to. None of them do. The Big Ten doesn't either. That's the other thing, too. That's another possible outcome. We might just be done. Cause remember like in 2014 and 2010, we were going through all the crazy like death scenarios of the four super conferences. And then there was like a couple huge moves and then it just stopped. We could be in the same situation again right now.
1: Yep. Um, very, very interesting. And of course uh, all, all moves and reports we're, we're going to keep you updated here on the cover three podcast. It's an incredibly fluid situation. And and um, before we hit the break, like I mentioned this to this to you over text as we were going back and forth over some of it, I I get very excited in my voice, and I sound very engaged with the topic. There is a part of me that's incredibly sad because there there is a fan, and there there is a type of fan that is losing here. If you are a college football fan that loves to sit on your couch and go, you know, noon slate, three thirty slate, prime time, and late night, and line up four football games all the way through, sit on your couch, eat snacks for cheap and, you know, go to the fridge and get, you know, drinks for cheap and just take it all in, place bets on your phone. You're winning. Like you are being marketed to, but if you are a fan who buys season tickets, who travels long distances to go to home games, who has made home games, a family affair, you are losing in the way that college football is changing. And I, I love that fan too. I mean, when we sit here on the locks pod, we are kind of talking to the fan that wants to sit on his butt and watch a full day of college football. You are in our audience, but I also know that uh, for the people whose college football experience is familial, who is tradition and is really investing their time, money and resources in getting to the stadium and meeting up with people and having a recognizable product of having people at your office all were at from rival schools because all of it's regional, then this is a little bit sad. And so I'm excited because it's uncertain. We don't know what's gonna happen. We can debate all of it, but I did want to at least speak to that fan because I know you listen to the podcast as well. Because I, I feel you, man. This stinks. The, the game is changing in a big way.
0: It's it's I feel terrible for our sport, but it's tremendous content.
1: <laughs> what prophetic words. <laughs> Coming up on the other side, we have been looking at preseason top 25s from all across the country there's some teams that show up in about the same places but it's not all the same so we are going to dive into some of college football's mystery teams of 2022 next cover three fans uh we are a nominee for the best sports podcast category in the people's choice podcast awards We appreciate all you guys do for us, and we hope that you enjoy our show enough to nominate us to advance all the way to the final round. To nominate the Cover 3 podcast, go to podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up. Once again, that is podcastawards slash app dot com slash app slash sign up, and then toggle down to the sports category. The whole process honestly takes less than 60 seconds. That is less than the amount of time it's taken for this read. We've included the link at the top of the episode description as well. Once again, go to podcastawards.com slash app slash sign up, toggle down to the sports category and nominate the cover three podcast to advance all the way to the final round. All right. So the, like, like I mentioned, it's, uh, it, there's a, there's just a really funny process of going through and putting together your top 25 of, of sorting through other top 25s. And, you know, we've I saw uh, Parker Stats of War on Twitter. He was like, I have pride myself on uh, my out my unique proprietary algorithm and, you know, the analytics I use and it is with all of crunching the numbers, I'm paraphrasing here, that I am here to announce that Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia will have good teams in 2022. <laughs> like you can fill out the top of your preseason top 25 with no controversy at all. You, it is, I'm not going to say it's lazy because it's probably right, but then things start to get a little bit interesting. So we have gone through some of the magazines. We've gone through some of the way too early top 25s. I started with the post-spring editions, you know, like all the ones that were re-upped in May. So at least we've got the transfer portal and spring practice factored in so we don't have some crazy variants. And so we want to highlight some of the mystery teams for 2022. So uh, I want to start uh, we'll just, you want to ping pong back and forth? We'll sure. nominate the ones that stand out to us the most. Sure. Okay. Oklahoma State. The Oklahoma State Cowboys were runners up in the Big 12 last year. Of course, just a heartbreaking loss right at the end to Baylor. Uh, had an incredible bowl game performance against Notre Dame. Then we see in the offseason, they lose their defensive coordinator, Jim Knowles, but do return. They'll lose also some some key pieces, both to the transfer portal and the NFL but do return a lot of that Cowboys team that played so well through the season, was able to get the Bedlam win against the Sooners. And, and now I have seen them, Tom, anywhere from 12 to 25, anywhere from knocking on the top 10 to you know throw them in there because they won a bunch of games last year. Oklahoma State, as a mystery team, I don't want to necessarily, if you can give me where you expect them to be, but you know, what do you think makes Oklahoma State a mystery team and sort of what is the ceiling and floor for the Cowboys as you see?
0: If I have to predict where they're going to start the season ranked, I would say 15 to 20. I, I think that if you look at this team going into the year, obviously it's coming off a great season, reached the Big 12 championship, nearly won the conference, did win the Fiesta Bowl. But as you mentioned, Jim Knowles is leaving. That's a huge question mark to me because like Oklahoma State over the years, like when it was really humming under Mike Gundy, when it almost got to, you know, the the BCS title game, not that long ago, this was a team that was scoring like 50 points a game. Like that was the trouble with trying to beat it. You couldn't just show up and try to, you know, stop it defensively. You couldn't. You knew you were going to have to score 40 points to beat the Cowboys. But in the last few years with Jim Knowles, like this is a team that completely changed its identity. It became defense first. It had one of the best defense or one of the best defenses in the Big 12. And offensively, it really wasn't very explosive. It wasn't scoring the same kind of points. So now that Knowles is gone, if that defense does drop off a little bit, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, who knows, Are we going to see enough from Oklahoma State's offense that they can make up for any possible deficit suffered by that defection or drop off on the defensive side? And when you look at their schedule, like it starts off pretty easily. Like Central Michigan, you know, that's a good MAC team, but Oklahoma State should beat it. They get Arizona State at home. God knows what that team's going to be. They should win. They get Arkansas Pine Bluff. They'll win. But like when they get to conference play, they start with Baylor on the road. They get TCU on the road. They get Kansas State on the road, which is probably a team we're going to be talking about at some point today, too. And then they get Oklahoma on the road. That's not the easiest schedule to manufacture and get through. So this is a team that I feel like it could start the year ranked. It might end the year ranked. But I will not be surprised at all if like Oklahoma State ends up 8-4 and four and just not ranked altogether come the end of the year. Do you think that,
1: for me, um, Spencer Sanders is like your – your pivot point here Mm -hmm. because uh, Oklahoma state eighth in the conference out of 10 teams in terms of yards per play in the big 12 last year. And like you mentioned, it was very heavily reliant on the defensive side of the football to go out there and win games. Spencer Sanders did have his moments. If I put together a highlight reel of his best plays, you're like, wow, that guy can do great things for this Oklahoma state team However, there can also be a highlight reel that I put together and you're like, why is that guy starting? Is Shane Illingworth still here? Like there, there are a lot of different you know aspects to Spencer Sanders, which I do think contributes to the mystery team side of this. I will predict that there is going to be a little bit more of a step back. That does mm-hmm. not mean that there is an unjust cause for them to be ranked highly or to be ranked in the preseason. But I think that for Oklahoma State, to live up to what I do think is going to be a preseason top 20 ranking. It's got to be on like, seems lazy, but I also think it is very pertinent. It's got to be on the quarterback who has spent three years as a starter with Mike Gundy, an offensive coach who we have seen be able to get great things out of quarterbacks. And so you're really, really going to need to flip the switch there because like you mentioned, there's, there's just bound to be a little bit of drop off on the defensive side of the ball.
0: Yeah, I, I think if you're looking at Oklahoma State and you're saying, you know, like, can it get back to a Big Twelve championship? No, like it, it can, but like everything's going to have to go right for Oklahoma State, and they're going to need things to go wrong for other teams.
1: Um, you mentioned that uh, Central Michigan opener. Do you remember the bananas play in 2016 when Central Michigan upset oh God, Oklahoma yeah. State on some wild, like. Maybe even it shouldn't like Mike Gundy was even like protesting something about mm-hmm. whether it should have been a touchdown or not, and it ended up being hilarious—not well, hilarious, but that Oklahoma depends State. On your perspective. Yeah, it depends on your perspective. <laughs> that Oklahoma State team was 10-3 and three and mm-hmm. finished the season number 11 in the country. You know, was sitting there knocking outside the door, uh, like top 10 in the country, going into the Bedlam game against Oklahoma, and had it not had that Central Michigan loss hanging mm-hmm. on to it from September 10th, maybe would have been in the college football playoff race. But uh, anyway.
0: It was like Pitt last year with the... Uh, with the Western Michigan. Yeah.
1: What's up with all these Michigans?
0: The, the directional Michigans will screw up with Cinderella. They'll be, you know...
1: <laughs> Joel in the chat obviously just got triggered. Uh, so I'm so sorry Joel to mention this the Oklahoma State travesty of 2016 against Central Michigan but um, oh my goodness so a wild wild sequence. If you want to do a little YouTube rabbit hole and you're not an Oklahoma State fan go and check it out. Oklahoma State Central Michigan 2016 ending uh, was phenomenal. Alright Tom Mystery Team where do you want to turn the spotlight?
0: Uh, I will go with a team that I think, like you said, the top 12 will be easy, but this is a team I think could start the year in the top 12. And I'm not sure it's going to finish there. Michigan state. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at everything that happened with them last year, a lot of stuff went right. Like they hit the home, they hit a grand slam on the transfer portal with Kenneth Walker who came in, had a terrific season. The offense was very good. Mel Tucker, everything, just everything went well. But the defense was not good. Like I, I feel like we tend to overlook how terrible that defense was, especially late in the year. It was, a pass,
1: it was the pass defense was one of the worst pass defenses, like one of the 20 worst yeah. pass defenses in the country. And we went into that Ohio State-Michigan State game like, oh, look at this big top showdown between the Buckeyes and the Spartans. And anybody who was smart was like, okay, so you're telling me CJ Stroud and these wide receivers against the poorest pass defense, this is This is definitely not going to end 49 to 7, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's oh it's gonna end 49 to 7. Okay, Mm -hmm. gotcha.
0: And this is also a team that played in a lot of close games and came out on the right end of a lot of close games. And we see that sometimes, you know, that could kind of course correct itself. So I think Michigan State is a team that is gonna come into 2022 with a lot of high expectations that it could live up to. But it could also completely flop, which is, I think, you know, it's a high variance team, which I think kind of qualifies it as a wild card because a lot of what made it good last year left. We don't know how much it's done to truly address the past defense. I think they will be improved because simply it'll be hard to be worse. And Mel Tucker, you know, his background as a defensive coach, I think that they're going to work on getting that fixed. But like I I just don't know if I'm at a place with Michigan State just yet where I expect them to be the team that they were last year. When you look at their schedule, they get Western Michigan, the team that beat up Pitt last year and kind of (laughs) destroyed that. Akron will be a win. But at Washington, maybe a possible future Big Ten game. That's going to be tough. You get Minnesota, Ohio State's on the schedule. You also draw Wisconsin from the West. You get a road trip to Illinois, which I think Michigan State lost the last time they went to Champaign, and they've had a couple close games in Champaign, and I think this Illinois team's going to be better than most of the Illinois teams we've seen in recent years. You get Michigan on the road. Like, this is a team that I feel like could start off, this this could be one of those teams because every year there's a team that starts ranked in the top 10 or so and then finishes the year unranked. And I think last year there were a bunch of them. I can't remember how many off the top of my head. But Michigan State strikes me as a team that could begin this year ranked in the top 10 and finish unranked.
1: I've seen them very, like, they are a team that because they went to and won a New Year's Six bowl game and because they had this double-digit win total, they are one of the first teams that a lot of uh, pollsters are going to grab once they run out of the usual suspects, and like that, that is a little bit of a familiar theme. You know, just go back to the mm-hmm. New Year's Oklahoma State's another you know New Year's Six team who brings everyone back. So I, I understand why they're going to end the, why are they, they're going to be there. That's also the same profile that I've got for a mystery team, and I have seen Ole Miss as high as sixteen yep. or so. I I also saw a top twenty-five without Ole Miss in it. You know, just not ranked. And that might have been a little bit of an update issue, but I have also seen them more in the 20s. Uh, I've seen them with as much of a 10 spot variation there for the Rebels, uh, a team that, you know, went out there and uh, played in a New Year's Six game. They did not win it. Baylor did, but of course they had the injury to Matt Corral as a big part of that. They lose Matt Corral. Uh, they lose Jerry and Ely. They lose Sam Williams, but. Now, and this is all after winning 10 regular season games for the first time in program history. I mean, this is a massive, massive step forward year. But you get Jackson Dart in from USC. Uh, you know Luke Altmaier in his time in that bowl game at least showed that he, he might be all right. And the transfer portal has just been uh, a big place for Ole Miss to go and get answers, including I think the most notable being Zach Evans at the running back position. Ole Miss living up to last season's historic expectations seems like a big ask Ole Miss probably deserving to be in the top 25 but if you want to throw them down near the 20s I wouldn't argue with it what are sort of your big questions and what are the mysteries around the Rebels
0: well I, I'm not that cons- like obviously there are questions to answer on offense because Matt Corral's gone and you know new quarterback and Jackson Dart you know if, like when you watch him in the spring Jackson Dart did not really take the bull by the horns like there there are still some questions about who's going to be the team's quarterback and anytime. You have those questions. It's hard to know how good a team's going to be. That said, with Lane Kiffin and the coaching staff and the offense that they run, pretty confident that Ole Miss is going to be viable on offense. They're going to score points. Uh, I think that this is a team with a pretty high floor because of that. And I also think that it's a high floor because they get pretty lucky with their divisional draw in the SEC. Like they're, they're non-conference. They get Troy, Central Arkansas, and they're at Georgia Tech, and then Tulsa. They should be 4-0. Starting, right. agree, and then their first two sec games are against their two sec east opponents, Kentucky and at Vandy. I don't know how much of a sweeter, like, unless you're getting South Carolina and like, South Carolina and Vandy is the dream draw for a west team, Kentucky's going to be tough, but still, you're avoiding Georgia, you're avoiding Florida, and you're avoiding a Tennessee team that could be pretty good this year, too. And you know. You don't want any more mustard bottles thrown at you. So, I, I do think that because of that, this is a team that could easily get off to a six and 0 start. And then it's got Auburn at home. So, it could be seven and 0 by the time you reach mid October. And then that's when all hell will break loose because it starts with at LSU and at A&M in consecutive weeks, a bye. And then you get Alabama and Oxford. You're on the road for Arkansas. And you finish with Mississippi State. So there's that stretch in mid-October to early mid-November that's going to be huge to determine how good this team is. But I do think that they're probably going to win eight games at a minimum. And I think going eight and four as an SEC West team, you're going to finish ranked.
1: When you do your preseason poll, do you – like we we have the CBS Sports uh one thirty. Um or now it'd be one thirty one. Shout out to James Madison. Woo! Oh, oh, dudes. Uh, <laughs> um do you do it sort of with the, in mind of what they will be at the end of the season? Just as a personal preference.
0: Yeah, it's more of a projection than anything. I, I it's our preseason like I I use my rankings formula for all the stuff to, you know, during the season when it's reactive. In my preseason poll, I kinda it's a mixture of my power rankings and then just based on you know what i think is going to happen based on schedules like i do my projections and then i kind of get what the team's records are going to be and then i just kind of figure out who's going to get voted by who and like i said an sec west team that's eight and four is much more likely to finish ranked than a big 10 west team that's eight and four so that also comes into play because i'm really just trying to predict what the final rankings will be yes
1: well, I'll tell you that the College Football Playoff Selection Committee always holds a spot between 21 and 24 for an 8 and 4 SEC West team.
0: For sure, because always. we got to keep that schedule banging.
1: Woo! Okay, all right. Um, we'll hit maybe two or three more before we get out of here. What's a uh, point Point spotlight somewhere else?
0: I Can I do with a team that I don't think is going to begin the season ranked? Sure. I, I, I mentioned it briefly when we were talking about Oklahoma State. I think Kansas State is going to be a big wild card. In in 2022, because this is a team that if you talk to the analytics folks, they're pretty pumped about heading into the season. Like, this is a team that people think can make some noise. They've got some talent. They've got a manageable schedule as far as the Big 12 is concerned, in that they get, you know, they get Oklahoma State at home. They're getting, you know, they got to go on the road for Oklahoma and Iowa State, which is tough. But for the most part, Oklahoma State at home, Texas at home, like, this is a team that people think are going to take a step forward. But the wild card to me is, Adrian Martinez. (laughs) Like, I've seen a lot of Adrian Martinez at Nebraska over the few years, and I feel like you should not take anything for granted when Adrian Martinez is your quarterback. And it's going to be an interesting subplot to follow in that if Adrian Martinez goes to Kansas State and takes a step forward and is balling out and having a terrific season while Nebraska is still kind of stuck in the mud, it's not going to be great for Scott Frost. But if Adrian Martinez goes to Kansas State and he's still very, you know, wild and just kind of, you know, up and down, maybe, you know, Scott Frost gets looked at a little differently, but I just think that Kansas state is a team that could end up playing in the big 12 championship and could finish five and seven, which that's pretty much a wild card to be.
1: Without a doubt. I mean, if Kansas state, Kansas state is the non Texas, non Oklahoma, non Baylor team, most poised to, Go up there and take the cookies if everybody else screws it up.
0: Like, you know what Iowa State has been the last few years in the Big 12? Like State. Yeah, I feel like Kansas State can be this the, the this year's version of Iowa State. I think Baylor, I think, is a little too solid of a foundation to think that they're going to be like a Cinderella kind of team. Oklahoma State, I think, is going to be good but could drop off. I think Kansas State could be the one team for everybody's like they're the plucky little underdog that's just you know keeps winning and people are like, wow, look at but you know they're not a playoff team. But it's like, yeah, well they're still a pretty good team. But they, like I said, they could also be five and seven for all I know
1: not a massive difference here but i do think that there's a a big wild card factor but the miami hurricanes i've seen as high as like 14 but -hmm. then as low as like 21 or so they're normally not all the way near the end of the top 25 a lot of people see tyler van dyke as a, a very like impressive quarterback mario cristobal and some of the work they've done on the transfer portal to solidify the defensive side of the ball there's even uh, there's a lot of reason to look at this group and especially when it comes to uh, the rest of the competition in that ACC coastal division, one more year of coastal chaos um, to think that Miami's going to be able to have a good record. What do you, where are you at with the hurricanes right now? And a reminder, we've got wind totals that will start up in the next couple of weeks. I know we'll hit the ACC on the earlier side of that. So feel free to keep any like you know, big time fire takes out there. But I, I think that Miami's, Floor and ceiling, much like Kansas State, are probably three to four wins apart.
0: Yeah, but the problem I face is that there are two college football programs that when hype and off season, you know, like the off season hype starts surrounding them and people start getting excited. I make it a point to go out of my way not to buy in. Miami is one, Texas is the other. Texas, I am fighting off any hype surrounding it. I know they're recruiting really well right now. I know Arch Manning's coming. That's not going to impact them this year. I know they have Quinn Ewers. Everybody's super excited about it. They've got great receivers, but I'm just, I'm not buying it until I see it. I'm not buying it. (laughs) I'm having a lot harder time doing it with Miami because I am genuinely excited and pumped up about what I think this Miami team can be in 2022. And a lot of it stems from just how I feel about Tyler Van Dyke based on what I saw from him last year. I think that he's one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And I think that should he be allowed to continue showing off what he can do, he's going to prove to be one of the best quarterbacks in the country. And I think if you look at this team, like they've got a chance to make noise. Like I think they're going to win the Coastal. I just don't look around the rest of that division and see another team that I I truly believe is capable of challenging them over the course of a full season. There might be one that could beat them on a Saturday, but over the course of the full eight games, I don't see it happening. But I'm telling you, I have this feeling in my gut. September 17th at Texas A&M. I'm not going to say Miami's going to win the game. I'll take them in the points. I'm I'm saying Miami's going to cover, for sure. And by the time that game rolls around, again, I'm having a difficult time holding off my Miami hype train. I might be taking Miami on the on as, a, as a money line sprinkle at that point. By the time that game rolls around,
1: I mean, but like to to your point, I do not think Mario Cristobal's arrival will allow for Miami to fully wash the Miami off. I think no. that Miami could give us a win like Texas A&M, Miami could put a, a scare into Clemson. They're losing the Duke of then, <laughs> then They could lose at Georgia Tech. Yeah, you know, like there's that. There, there's that. Yeah. There's been that one thread that we have where the, the ceiling and the floor are very, very far. Like they're going to finish with a record that will be about what we think in terms of it being nine or 10 wins. But the wins and the losses might not make any sense whatsoever and that's just because you can't you can't can't wash the miami off with just one season it's gonna am, it's gonna take a little
0: while i am ready to be hurt again yes all right uh give me one more uh last one i will go let's go back to the big 10 um minnesota that's a team i think you're gonna get when you're filling out your preseason ranking i think a lot of people get down to the 20 part mm-hmm. and they're like hey you know this team this teams has been pretty good the last couple of years outside the covid year they they have a chance to you know be a competitor in the Big 10 West and i think that this is a team that could once again be a pretty solid team i don't think they've got like top 10 potential or anything but when you look at their schedule it's pretty soft for the most part like as far as like power 5 schedules are constructed they start with new mexico state then they get western illinois then they get colorado at home i think they're starting 3 and 0 uh, they open the Big Ten by going on the road at Michigan State, which I think is a winnable game. Because as we talked about, I'm not 100% sure what Michigan State is going to be. They get Purdue at home. Then they have their bye. They're on the road against Illinois, who beat them in Minnesota last year. They're on the road against Penn State. They get Rutgers at home and Braska on the road. Northwestern, Iowa at Wisconsin. So I don't think they're going to win the West, but I think that this is a team that could once again be in that eight and four, nine and three range, but could also be six and six, five and seven. Could also get maybe to 10 wins if things go right and the offense kind of clicks and they are able to get a little more balanced than what we saw from them last year. So, this is a team to me that I think is a very, but like I know Purdue's been a popular kind of like dark horse pick in the Big Ten West. I think that Minnesota is what a lot of people think Purdue is going to be. I, I just have a lot more trust in that program and the, and the foundation it's on at this point than I do for Purdue. So I think Minnesota is a team that might not win the big 10 West, but will have a lot of say in who does and could end up the season ranked.
1: So I, a lot of my Minnesota optimism is based on, you know, the idea that Kirk Shiraka has returned teamed up with Tanner Morgan who had his best it's been very very good uh, you've got a wide receiver room there that i I do think is positioned to help that passing game find its feet again after like you mentioned it was completely lost uh, there for just a little bit and I I don't want to factor in I don't want to like go through our entire preseason coming back to but if he gets injured mm-hmm. but I do think the quarterback depth is one thing where it's like you mentioned the floor it's like if you remove Tanner Morgan from the equation, I don't have enough confidence in Cole uh, Kramer and the rest of that room for me to go out there and be like, and you know what? They'll still be okay after that. All of my Minnesota optimism is based on Kirk Scirocca, Tanner Morgan, and a passing game coming to life. And that can be a little bit of a a wild card proposition, definitely making Minnesota a mystery team.
0: That said, Minnesota went 9-4 and last year without a passing threat because even with Tanner Morgan in there was really they ran the ball like 70% of the time and defenses weren't even worried about them throwing the ball against them and they still won nine games so even if Tanner Morgan gets hurt and they have to run the ball 75% of the time i don't know if it's that terrible for him
1: we'll see we will that's what that's the good thing about building up just a, a bunch of big old burly boys on the offensive line just so you can hey if we can't see, throw the
0: ball anymore. That's the biggest question I have about them, is because they do lose a lot of offensive, like they lose some key offensive linemen. It'll be interesting to see if if that program is at the point like with Wisconsin and Iowa where they lose guys, but then you just know that they're going to reload.
1: Uh, agree. You can follow him on Twitter at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at chip underscore Patterson. We'll be back on Thursday with another edition of the mail bag. If you would like to add a question to the big old bag of mail, of course five-star review put your question in that review it is loaded up we cannot wait to get to some of those but that's not the only way you want to hit us up at tom Fernelli at chip underscore patterson with a question we can tackle that as well tom thank you very much
0: thank you